Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. This occurs right after last week's passage of Jesus' baptism in the Jordan by his cousin John. And when he came up out of the water, you'll recall that they heard a voice that said, This is my beloved son. I am well pleased with him. This is what happened next. Jesus returned from the Jordan River full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. There he was tempted for 40 days by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and afterward Jesus was starving. The devil said to him, Since you are God's son, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus replied, It's written, People won't live only by bread. Next, the devil led him to a high place and showed him in a single instant all the kingdoms of the whole world. The devil said, I will give you this whole domain and the glory of all these kingdoms. It's been entrusted to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. Therefore, if you will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It's written, you will worship the Lord your God and serve only him. The devil brought him into Jerusalem and stood him at the highest point of the temple. He said to him, since you are God's son, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and they will take you up in their hands so that you won't hit your foot on a stone. Jesus answered, It's been said, don't test the Lord your God. After finishing every temptation, the devil departed from him until the next opportunity. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. This week, we are continuing on with our series in Luke, moving from Jesus' baptism in the Jordan to his testing in the wilderness. It seems to be the way that life goes, isn't it? One moment, we are on top of the world, secure in ourself and in our place, and then boom. The next, we find ourselves alone in the wilderness, starving and wondering what happened. It's like an old Alanis Morissette song. Ironic. This is where we find Jesus today. In the previous chapter, he had come from the Jordan to be baptized, and during the baptism, he experiences the descent of the Holy Spirit upon him and hears the words, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. He is utterly secure in his identity and his place in the world. And then the next thing we know, he is wandering about a barren desert for over a month hungry and alone until who should show up but the devil himself. And the first words out of the devil's mouth are this, since you're the son of God. This isn't said in a way that's nice or encouraging. It's more like a challenge. A lot of versions translate it as, if you're the son of God. See, now that Jesus is alone and vulnerable, the enemy attacks his sense of identity. Who are you really, he's asking. 
A few years ago, I went to Hawaii with some friends, and because we're not morning people, we decided to go up to the top of a volcano and watch the sunset. It's about 10,000 feet at the top of Haleakala, and when you get up there, you can't help but notice everything seems different. The air is thinner, it's a lunar landscape. Everywhere you look is ocean, as far as the eye can see. And as we huddled there on the side of the mountain waiting for the sunset, we realized something that was fascinating. See, at 10,000 feet, you're above the clouds. And so as the sun began to set and the sky began to light up, it was incredible. But more than that, the stars began to come out quickly. And by the time the sun had gone down, the sky above us was jam-packed with more stars than I have ever seen in my life, stretching out as far as the eye can see. And it was awe-inspiring, but it also made me feel incredibly tiny, insignificant in the face of the vastness of the universe and the world. This is the power of the wilderness, whether it is the physical wilderness or an emotional or spiritual or mental wilderness in our life. It has the power to strip us down and make us vulnerable. When we're in the crowds, when we stay with the people on the way down to the Jordan at the baptism, or when we're yelling Hosanna with the masses welcoming Jesus into the city, it is easy to hide. To hide in the crowd and to ignore the hard questions, to go with the flow and never have to look inside yourself and ask, who am I? But when you're alone in the wilderness, when you find yourself hot and dusty and thirsty and hungry, when your choices and your decisions turn out to be all your own, those are the moments when we cannot escape the questions that keep us up at night. Who am I? Whose am I? Am I loved? Where do I belong? Where am I going? And it is in this place that true temptation lies, waiting for us in the wilderness of life. In our current world, I feel like all too often we have trivialized temptation. We have taken away its teeth and its power. Let's try this. I want you to think for a moment silently to yourself what one of the biggest temptations in your life that you've faced is. Not by show of hands, but how many of you thought of food or sweets or sex or money? You see, the danger is of reducing temptation down to nothing more than doing something that we think we shouldn't do. And when we do this, we do a disservice to ourselves because we leave ourselves very vulnerable to the root of the problem. And no matter how many times we say no to a piece of cake or we turn our eyes to avoid staring, we're never going to get down to the heart of it. Because temptation is not what we do, it's about who we are. And this is exactly what happened to the people of God, to Israel. When they flee from Egypt, they find themselves out in the wilderness, hungry and thirsty and alone. And for 40 years they wander, having to relearn again and again who they are and who God is because they keep forgetting their identity. 
I would imagine after 40 days of wandering that Jesus has started to wonder as well. Wonder if everything that had happened at the river was nothing more than a figment of his imagination. Homeless and moneyless and hungry and alone, he had a number of reasons to begin to doubt God. To forget the promise that had been made to him. And as the reader, we are set up to wonder as well, to wonder, what is Jesus going to do? Is he going to be like the people of Israel? Or is there another way? The first temptation that the devil lays at his feet is this, since you are God's son, if you're God's son, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. The temptation here is not about food. This is not a check on Jesus' dieting willpower. This is about whether or not Jesus trusts in God's provision or if instead he will want to rely on his own self-sufficiency. When he replies, one does not live by bread alone, he is rejecting the temptation to do it himself. And this is so hard for so many of us. Because on a regular basis, you and I desire to take our lives into our own hands. We pride ourselves on being self-sufficient. We glorify it. We brag about our ability to turn stones into bread for our own well-being. Even in our faith life, we value our self-sufficiency. We study and we volunteer and we worship and we forget that it is the Holy Spirit that makes any of that matter. The temptation is to forget that it is through and by God that we are sustained. The temptation is to begin to think that we are the God of our own life. I love the movie Bruce Almighty. I don't know how many of you have seen it. If you haven't, you should add it to your next net Netflix queue. But if you haven't seen it, this is what it is. It's a story of a man who temporarily is given the powers of God after complaining about how he feels God is treating him unfairly. Bruce is sure that he can do a better job at being God than God can. And so when he's gifted those powers, he begins to fix things, but he begins to fix things in his own life first, the things he perceives to be wrong. So he gets a better car and a better job, he tries to fix his relationship, makes his dog stop peeing in the house. He goes after revenge for the people he feels have slighted him. But all of a sudden he starts to hear voices in his head and he can't figure out what it is. And this is when God pops back in the picture and he reminds him, those are prayers of people. And you better find a way to deal with them because they're only going to keep growing. And so Bruce does what any modern person must do. He decides he's going to turn them all into emails. Yahweh.com, I believe is what he calls it. And then he decides to do this. He hits reply all and he types yes. Now, as you can imagine, this doesn't go very well. It leads to more problems and more chaos and more destruction. And it's in this moment in a desperate moment that Bruce falls to his knees and he cries out, okay, you win, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be God. I want you to decide what is right for me. I surrender to your will. 
And right there, he's remembering why God is God and he is not. When he opens his eyes, he finds himself on the top of Mount Everest. And it reminds me of this moment in the second temptation of Jesus. Because next, the devil leads Jesus to the high place, and he shows him in a single instant all of the kingdoms of the world. And the devil says, I will give you this whole domain and the glory of all these kingdoms. It's been entrusted to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. Therefore, if you will worship me, it will all be yours. Like Bruce, how many of us have been tempted by the thought then maybe, just maybe, we could do it better than God. That if for just one day we were given the power that God had, we would fix all of the major problems in the world. We would end poverty and war and hunger and sickness. This is what the devil is offering Jesus. It's not just bad things but it's the chance to exert his power as God's son on his own timeline in his own way. Why wait for God's plan? Why subject yourself to the coming humiliation and suffering of the cross? You could cut the corner and fix all the problems in the world right now. Minimal fuss. In his great play, The Murder at the Cathedral, which dramatizes the martyrdom of Thomas Beckett, T.S. Eliot presents the challenges and temptations of Jesus in a different format. And instead, this time, it comes to Beckett. And at the very end of facing these, this is what he says. Now my way is clear, now that the meaning is plain. Temptation shall not come in this way again. The last temptation is the greatest treason, to do the right deed for the wrong reason. We've all heard the phrase making a deal with the devil. A modern idea where we excuse the way that something is done or we excuse the things that a person has done in order to get what we believe is the right outcome. It's the same thing. We hear this all the time in politics. Who cares what a person has said or done? Who cares about what they did in the past as long as we can get people on the Supreme Court? Because then we could just advance what we think is right, what we know is right, and it's just all for the greater good. Just do a deal with the devil. We hear this all the time in sports. Who cares what the player did? Who cares who he hurt or the things that happened in his past? We're winning the games. It's good for the city. We hear this all the time in religion, where we hide and cover up horrific abuses just in order to protect the message and mission of the church in the greater world. And it's so easy to do, because all it takes is a second, a second in which we trade our integrity and we turn our eyes from worshiping God to worshiping another a greater or higher ideal in our mind. In Jurassic Park, the first and best Jurassic Park, the ethicist Ian Malcolm is talking with the owner of the park. And he looks at him and he says this. He says, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could, they didn't 
stop and think if they should. Jesus is in this moment. And when he replies, this is what he is rejecting, this way of thinking and living. Because just because he could, just because he has the power, doesn't mean that he should use it. He turns to the devil and he says, you will worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And in this moment, he is confessing and acknowledging that it is not about his glory or his plan or his desire to be relevant or his desire to do good. The temptation that he's facing is to leave God's mission and begin his own. To forget his identity as the son of God and begin believing that he himself is God. And how much do you and I need to hear this? How often are we dealing with fighting our inner selves when we want to serve our own pride or ambition or ego instead of following God's plan? How often is it tempting to cut corners, to try to get around the suffering and struggle rather than going through the suffering and struggle? Jesus knows this, that God has a plan for him and for all people and their redemption. But it is God's plan and not Jesus's. Jesus's job, his purpose, his identity, is to serve and follow God, not to do his job for him. And likewise, you and I, God has a plan for our life, but it asks and he asks us to trust him in its unfolding rather than trying to take it over. I think perhaps of all the temptations that Jesus is facing, the third one is perhaps the most dangerous. Because we can train ourselves to become less self-sufficient. We can practice following and trusting. We can practice living with integrity. We can surround ourselves with a community that will lift us up when we fall and when we fail and help us to get back on the path. But the third temptation is one that can only be fought alone. In the third and final try, the devil brings him up to Jerusalem. And he stands him on the highest point of the temple and says, If you're God's son, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and they will take you up in their hands so that you won't hit your foot on a stone. He brings Jesus to his father's house. And he stands him on top of it, the place where God's present presence on earth is residing and basically says this. Does your dad really love you? If your dad really loves you, if you really belong to him, if you really believe he loves you, then just throw yourself off. He won't let any harm come to you. See, he's going for the knockout punch the one that's the most insidious, the one that inserts a doubt of God's love into someone's life. And the devil is clever because he knows the softest spots of a human heart and he knows how to manipulate them. He also is the world's oldest proof texter. 
grabbing one line out of Psalm 91 while ignoring the rest of Scripture and the rest of the prophecies about Jesus. And he tries to twist God's word to make it fit his own purpose. A solid warning for you and I if we ever find ourselves tempted to do the same, to grab a verse of Scripture and try to mold it and make it fit out of God's context and into our own ideological ideals. The only role model we have there is the devil himself. Each of us, no matter who we are, we desperately want to know that we are loved by God. We crave a way to to know with certainty that love, to know that God is with us and loves us no matter what. And we try in a million different ways to find and feel that love, some that are healthy and some that are not. But Jesus knows what the devil is trying to do. He knows the questions he's trying to cause And he turns to me and says, do not test the Lord your God. It's a verse that is and should be familiar to us. It is found first in Deuteronomy 6. And it comes right after a passage in which God has reminded his people exactly what he had done for them. How he had rescued them from slavery and bondage in Egypt. He had brought them through the wilderness and fed them manna when they were hungry that he had brought them into the promised land and handed cities over into their grasp. See, when Jesus uses this phrase to reply to the devil, what he's saying is, I know who God is. And because I know who he is, one who keeps his covenant, one who has loved and continues to love his children through the worst and the best of times, I will not test him. I will hold fast to the promises that he has already given. And he reminds us, you and I, that God always has been and always will be faithful. And that rather than trying to find new ways to prove to ourselves that God loves us, all we have to do is look back at the history of his faithfulness to see the truth. Each of us will face wilderness in our own lives time and time again. There's no avoiding it. There is absolutely no easy way to get through life. But rather than being something that we fear, the wilderness can be something we embrace as a time in which we get to know ourselves and God better, when we get to know who we are and whose we are in a way that we simply cannot do when we're surrounded by all the noise. When we're aware of the roots of temptation, we will find ourselves more prepared to deal with it, whether it is in the form of chocolate bars or embezzling money or lying to your parents. When your identity is secure in God, rather than in yourself or in how others perceive you, You are able to experience the same freedom that Jesus does. To be able to turn down the deals the devil would give and live a life of trust following God. Because this is what's incredible and this is what we know. Every week we look at this table. 
And we forget that every what we are seeing is the fulfillment of God's promises in a way that so outweighs what the devil ever could have offered. The devil looked at Jesus and said, turn this stone into bread and for just a moment you'll have food. And God says, I will make you the bread of life for everyone. The devil says, just worship me and I'll give you all these kingdoms. You can fix them and help them. It doesn't matter. God says, by your blood, you will be the salvation of the world. And when the devil says, throw yourself off, if he really loves you, you won't come to any harm. This table every week speaks of one who was resurrected, who walked through the struggle and who knows he's in God's hands. The brief promises and the questions that the devil brings into life are nothing compared to the eternal promise and love of God. May we hear the difference.